I'm going to be reading to you from the, the book of John, chapter 19. I'm going to start in verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was now the day of preparation, and the next day would be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it was given, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows what he tells is the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so what Scripture said might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And the other Scripture said, and they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had early visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds of them. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden had a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen laying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth had been laying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb, they went inside. He saw and believed. They did still not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. In the 11th chapter... Of John, Jesus says these words to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, right before he raised Lazarus from the grave. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. What is there about that simple statement that can give us hope in this dark world? That's what we'll explore today. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14, it starts. It says that 
Jesus became mortal. He put on flesh and became like us. So that through his death, he might destroy the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who fear death. And they were subject to lifelong slavery. One man put it this way. The fear of death makes us act foolishly. Committing ourselves to self-destructive habits and enslaving ourselves because we see our bodies as deteriorating. We analyze ourselves and we anesthetize ourselves. We put drugs in our bodies and, and alcohol and we try to make, we try to act younger and we try to make our we make fools of ourselves. Let's just be honest. Today, especially with TikTok world, you make fools of yourself. And sometimes it even destroys families in the process. People are trying to reverse the aging process and it's irreversible. There is no fountain of youth. There's no way our model, mortal bodies will live forever. Science might prolong your lives but it can't do anything about the dying. Plastic surgeons might make you look like you cheated death, but in some cases, they make people look like death. (laughs) Is that true? You don't know how you're looking until you come out and take the bandages off. Trust me, that's bad. Let me grab something. Now, no matter what they do, they cannot allow you to cheat death. You just can't cheat death. We're all going to die one day unless Jesus comes first. But unlike the rest of the world, we who belong to Christ don't have to be afraid of death because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, a few years back, Scripps Howard News Service, along with Ohio University, asked a cross-section of America this question. Do you believe after you die that your physical body will be resurrected? 54% of those surveyed said they did not believe and 10% were undecided. So nearly two-thirds of America was, was, is saying and was saying, we don't think it's possible. Dead people just stay dead. It's a great study to read. And in the days of Jesus, there were lots of people who had the same problem there as well. The Sadducees, the the, the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, rejected the idea that anybody's body would rise from the dead. And when Jesus spoke to his disciples and told them that, that that he would die and be buried and rise again, Peter couldn't believe it. Now you can read Peter's reaction for yourself if you want to read Matthew chapter 16, verse 22. And then the other disciples, when they heard the news, they were filled with grief. And that's found in Matthew 17, 23. And and finally... After Jesus rose from the dead, Peter and John raced to the tomb and found it empty. 
John chapter 20 verse 9 tells us when they arrived, they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. But he did. Now, here's a little tidbit for you history buffs. You know how I like archaeological history, right? You're going to get a little bit of it today. We just got to have some, right? See, you may recall that the Bible tells us, sitting here today, that the Jews spread the rumor that Jesus' disciples had stolen the body. Thus explaining his absence from the body in the tomb, you know. After Christ's resurrection, Claudius Caesar, the emperor of Rome, issued a decree demanding that people stop stealing bodies in Judea's sepulchers. Now this, it's found on something called the Nazareth inscription. It's a marble tablet. It's 24 inches by 15 inches. Here's a picture of it, right? Written in Greek language. It decreed a death penalty in the nation of Israel for anyone caught robbing bodies. Normally, grave robbers of that time stole valuables, not bodies. They stole the frankincense and the myrrh, which was worth a fortune, along with anything else left with the body. But nobody took a decaying body. So why pass a law for all of the Roman world, and especially for Jerusalem? Because a body came up missing. The body of Jesus. But the body wasn't missing for long. The Apostle Paul tells us of hundreds of witnesses to the risen Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 through 8, we read, I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some had fallen asleep. Now, falling asleep means a few had died, right? And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last he, wa- he appeared to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, so will we. In the book of Revelations, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Jesus introduces himself to John with these words. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, Jesus died, and he was placed in a tomb, but he didn't stay there. He rose from the grave, and he literally picked up the keys to death and Hades, and on his way out. And so when he comes back, every grave will be opened, because he has the keys 
Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now, hear me out. When we read this statement here, a couple of questions should come to mind. The first question is, why did Jesus say that he was a resurrection and the life? Bear with me, I had too much breakfast this morning. Those muffins were good. Didn't help my waistline. Now, bear with me, this thing's not cooperating. There we go. Now, why didn't Jesus simply say, I am the resurrection? Why throw in the seemingly redundant life thing? Over and over again, Jesus tells those of his day and us sitting here today that he is the resurrection and the life. Well, it helps us to understand. It really does help us sitting here today to understand where Jesus was when he said this one of the times of his life. Let me take you back to John chapter 11. His best friend Lazarus had just died and been in the grave for four days. As Jesus entered the village, one of Lazarus' sisters approached him saying, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And that is true. But Jesus had deliberately delayed his arrival because he intended to raise Lazarus from the dead as his last miracle before his crucifixion. And on day four, to prove it to the Sadducees, he could do it. Lazarus was going to come out of the grave. But his sisters didn't know that. And so when Jesus sets the scene by telling her, I am the resurrection and the life, your brother will live again. And then, and shortly thereafter, they rolled the stone away to him, and Jesus called Lazarus out from the grave, and Lazarus rises from the dead. But here's the deal. Lazarus was going to die again. And that's just what he did. His resurrection was not permanent, but our resurrection from the dead will be. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50, starting in 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but have been changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, and the imperishable shall be changed. For the perishable body puts on the imperishable. And the mortal body must put on immortality, eternal life. And when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, we shall come to pass what saying is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's what it says there in that scripture. We have the promise of eternal life. 
In fact, we read about that in John chapter 3, 16. You all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's what we celebrate. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus said what he said because he not only came so people could rise from the dead, he also came so people might have eternal life. So, that's the first question you should have. Why did Jesus stress the life thing? Now, the second question you should have is this. Hear it out now. Why did Jesus say what he said the way he said it? Why did he say, I am the resurrection and the life? Why not simply say, I'm going to raise people from the dead and give them life? Why is he making it all about himself? Well, there's really two good reasons for this. And the first one is, he's making it all about himself because it is all about himself. Jesus has the power of resurrection and the power of life. Now, in my house, we have these things called light switches. Any of you got light switches? Right? We all know what this thing is, right? And and when you enter a dark room, you can flip the switch, and as long as the light bulb works... Bear with me one second. I got to fix this wire. It is not cooperating. Let me turn it off. That is any better. I'm sorry about all the crackling. Something always happens on Easter. Have you noticed that? Okay. Now, when you enter that dark room, you can flip that switch and the lights come on. But the light switch doesn't have any power. To give light. It's simply the way to turn on the power. The power behind the lights is a mile away at the electric company. The electric company creates the power. Without that power from the electric company, you can flip that switch all day long. You can walk into Menards and start flipping switches and have nothing happen. But the lights will not come on unless it's hooked up to the power company. Unless there's power hooked to the switch. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this. I am the power of resurrection and the power of life. Without me, Jesus is saying, you will not have eternal life. You can eat as healthy as you want. You can take all the vitamins you want. You can exercise several hours a day. But ultimately, you're going to die. You're going to die because you don't have the power of a resurrection in your life. You only have the ability to flip the switch. Only Jesus has the power of resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die... He shall live. So how do you flip the switch? 
If Jesus is the power of resurrection of life, how do you lay hold of that power? It's very simple. The Bible says we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we need to do this terrible word called repent. It means be be sorry of our sins. Repent of your sins. And determine to live that way no more. And that we should confess that Jesus will now be our Lord and Master. Now, the second thing that Jesus was telling those there and us sitting here today was a very bold declaration of who he is. We sitting here today do not take a hold of his statement, of this statement, let's word it that way, because of the differences in our culture. We sitting here today don't grasp it. He said, I am. And I am is one of the names of God recorded in many places in God's holy word. This I am statement is one of Jesus' seven I am statements. And each one he is declaring that he is God. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never be hungry. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And the one we're looking at today. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus clearly declared who he was when he walked this earth to those who would listen. But far too many missed it. He clearly declared what would happen in Jerusalem. He clearly declared that he must pay a price that you and I could not pay for our redemption. Sin had to be paid for, and God's only son paid that price for us. So the darkness of the crucifixion was replaced by the light of the empty tomb. You see, that's our message. The empty tomb is our message, and that message is hope. Now our building here, it's attractive, it's comfortable, and it's highly functional. But it cannot offer us hope. Hope is not found in a religion, but in a personal relationship with Jesus. Our message is not about the building, but the empty grave. Because it's only in the emptiness of Christ's grave that we have hope. Okay, now let me turn a corner here. How many of you are full from breakfast? Those muffins were big. If you did not get it, there's some muffins out there waiting for you. Now I'm going to turn a corner here. Bear with me. Might stretch a few of you. So many of Jesus' day miss so much. Even Jesus' disciples missed what Jesus told them. In our scripture reading today, 
of what happens around the empty tomb, are we missing a message that Jesus shared with those who would look? It's a question you need to consider. And you sitting here today who know me, know me well enough to know that I would not have asked this question unless there was a message there. In our scripture text this morning, Mary comes first to the tomb, to the empty tomb. She sees the stone rolled away and it frightens her. And so she runs against Peter and John. And they run together to the tomb as fast as they could. John now outran Peter. And when he got there, he looked inside and saw the grave clothes. Lay in there in disarray. Peter arrived, and just as we would expect a Peter, he barges right on in. That's Peter. And he saw the linen cloths lay in there. But there was something unusual about that scene. Something that caught their eye that was very interesting. The Gospel of John tells us the napkin, which was placed over Jesus' face, you would also call it a shroud, was just not thrown aside like the grave clothes. Your Bible, God's Holy Word, takes an entire verse to tell us that the napkin, the shroud, was neatly folded and placed at the head of the stony coffin. Is this important? You better believe it. Is it significant? Absolutely. Is it really significant? Yes. In order to understand the significance of the folded napkin, the folded shroud, you have to understand a little bit about the Jewish tradition of that day. Remember, we're in a different culture. The folded napkin had to do with the master-servant relationship. And in communication of that relationship, that every Jewish boy of that day knew this tradition. They knew it all. When the servant, let me explain this, when a servant set the table for his master, he made sure that everything was in the right place, just where the master wanted it. The table was finished, furnished perfectly, and then the servant would step back and wait. He wasn't supposed to be at the table. He wasn't supposed to be part of the conversation. He had to wait just out of sight until the master had finished eating. And the servant would not dare touch the table until the master was finished. Now, if the master were done eating, because a lot of times he got up and talked and did all these things, if he was done eating, he would rise from the table, wipe his fingers, his mouth, and his beard, right? And then he would wad up the napkin and toss it into the center of the table. The servant then would know it's time to clear the table. For in those days, the wadded napkin meant, I'm done. But if the master got up from the table, and he folded his napkin, and he laid it beside his plate or his place of eating, the servant would not dare touch the table, because the servant knew that the folded napkin meant, I'm not finished yet. The folded napkin meant, I'm coming back. 
And we miss that so quick, easily. Peter and John had walked with Jesus Christ for three years. They had watched him open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. They'd watched him literally raise people from the dead. They'd watched him die. And they watched all their hopes and all their dreams were shattered in that, that three hours of darkness as he died. All they could think of, it was over. It's all over. And for three long days, as they were in the depths of despair, the lights of their soul were gone out. Then after three days, then they saw the empty tomb. Not only did they see the empty tomb, but they saw the folded napkin in, in that empty tomb. And I believe with all my heart that when they saw the empty tomb and the folded napkin, God spoke to them and said, he's not finished, he's coming back. I thank God today that he is not finished. The tomb is empty, our Savior is alive, and the napkin is folded. And I submit to you today, he's not finished saving souls. Let me say that again. I submit to you today that he is not finished saving souls. The folded napkin says he's not finished. The Bible says that Jesus came into this world for one reason, to save sinners. Now, you all know John 3, 16. I quoted it just a little bit earlier, but there's a verse right after it, John 3, 17. And honestly, you should never quote 3, 16 without going to 3, 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says it this way. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other than under the name of heaven among men that, that whereby we might be saved. For that reason, there are two kinds of people in this world today. And it's not the distinction between black and white or God doesn't see us that way. There's not the distinction between rich and poor or educated or uneducated, or even Republican or Democrat. In the eyes of God, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who have already been saved, and those who need to be saved. Many people have the mistaken idea that good people are saved, and only bad people need to be saved. Now, now certainly bad people need to be saved. So do good people. May I say this as clearly as possible. No one exists who's so bad that they can't be saved. No one is so good that they don't need to be saved. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, you, you can look it up later, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In God's eyes, there's no difference. There's no big sinners, no little sinners, just sinners. Now, years ago, I'm going to take you back to old Billy Sunday days. Anybody in here besides me ever study Billy Sunday? He's old black and white type picture time. Oh, he would stand on chairs. He would stand on top of the piano. He would jump up and down on top of the piano to get your attention in those old days. My hips don't jump that well anymore, so we're not going to attempt it. 
And if I stood on the chair, I might break my hip. So we ain't going to attempt that either. But let me tell you about Billy Sunday. He was preparing to do a revival in a certain city. And this is the book, you can read about it, right? And he wrote ahead of time to the mayor of that city and said, would you please send me a list of names of people in your area who are in serious spiritual trouble? You know those old thing called letters and writing, you know, cursive that they don't teach no more, right? It's It actually works. To Sunday's surprise, wouldn't it be nice to have a name Sunday? To his surprise, the mayor sent him the phone book for the city. No, that this is a fact. He did. Sent him the whole phone book. The mayor knew something. He understood that we all need spiritual help. This is a fact. You can read about it. The napkin is still folded. He is still saving souls. The napkin is folded. He's not finished reclaiming the backsliders. Until he comes again, we need to proclaim that the tomb is empty to all who will listen. I want to start to close. You know what that means when a minister starts to close, right? It means you got another hunk of time to go. Telling you a story about Joe Bailey. Very serious story. In his book, A View from a Hearse. He told of the day his son died of cancer. He returned to the clinic that treated his son to thank them for their kindness and their caring of his son. And as he spoke to the receptionist, who he knew quite well because his son went there all the time for treatment, she motioned, motioned towards a woman whose son was just paying quietly on the side with the toys, waiting in the waiting area. And she said to him, He has the same cancer your son had. Why don't you go over there and see if you can talk with her? Now, he didn't really want to. His son, he just buried his son. But he reluctantly went over and sat down next to her. He said, it must be hard to bring him here for the treatments. Hard, she replied. I die every time I have to bring him in. What makes this worse, I know he's not going to, it's not going to stop the cancer. And I know that he's going to die. Joe Bailey was uncomfortable, as any of us would be at that moment. But he tried again. Still, some comfort, it's some comfort to know that when that happens, there's no more pain, no more suffering. They go to a better place. And there was a hardness in this woman's voice as she cried. No, when he dies, I'm just going to bury him in the cemetery and I'll never see him again. Now, Bailey wanted to leave at that moment. Remember, he had just buried his own son. He was uncomfortable to be reminded of his own loss. And it was even more uncomfortable to speak to this woman because she obviously had no hope. But he said quietly, I buried my boy yesterday, and I've only come here today to say thank you to the doctors and nurses for their kindness. I know what you're feeling, but I also know... There's a better life for my son now. And she said, how could you believe such a thing? And she was crying. And then Joe Bailey told her about Jesus. And he said that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives, believes in me, shall never die. 
The tomb is empty. The empty tombs are our only message. And the risen Christ is our only hope. The fact for us as Christians is death is not the final door. And the grave is not our resting place. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The world needs to know that. But the Bible clearly says that our Savior is coming back again. The folded napkin says he's not done. The book of Revelation tells us that he's coming back again. Now, the first time he came riding a donkey of peace. Book of Revelation records when he comes again, he's riding a war horse. And he's going to clean house. The devil knows what's happening. It's, it's going to happen. It's right there to read. First time he came in peace and love, he did not come to conquer. He came to love and to show love. Next time he comes to clean house. Our job until that time comes is to share the empty tomb. Now we're excited you're all here today. Some of you are really excited because the weather's better. Doesn't that just cheer us up a lot? The snow's going to be gone, right? You're going to have this thing called warmth. Any of you like to be warm? Any of you tired of snow? I look at it this way. Winter reminds us that spring's coming. The empty tomb reminds us that Jesus is coming. Now we need to close. We're gonna. What we traditionally do is we close in prayer. Then we'll stand and have you sing a song. Then you'll be invited out to come nibble on some of the muffins and maybe have a second one or two. Right? It won't hurt you. Right? And then have some fellowship. If you're a visitor today, we're thankful you're here. If you're home, folks, we love you. And if you're on the internet, God bless you. No, they're, they're, some people, it's, it, that's how they watch us. We, we have people, it's amazing the emails we get from all sorts of countries. Don't ask me how. My favorite guy right now is in um, Cambodia. He was emailing me questions. And it has to be switched from Khmer to English. And I didn't understand some of the questions because that translator thing in the computer doesn't make sense. Does that make, you know what I'm talking about? I had to type them back because I don't understand what you're asking. Think about that. You forget that we have ministry all over. We have our churches in Egypt. We have all this. But what matters is outside this wall. See, your mission field is where you work at. Your mission field is your neighbors. And for you lucky enough to go to Arizona, your mission field's in Arizona. But it's called marketplace multipliers. You need to be Christ where you live, where you work. They only know you by your actions. So let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that the napkin is folded. We are so thankful that the... The tomb is empty. Father, we do not have words to express the glory of that we see at the tomb. 
Our hope is found at the tomb. Our message is found at the tomb. It is empty, Father. That is what we are celebrating today. There is no more fear of death. We die differently. Oh, if we could have just been there to see the roll away stone. But you sent the witnesses. You sent the example. You sent a a Caesar to decree that it was illegal and death penalty because somebody came out of the tomb. Oh, what a day that was. And what a day it will be when we see him again. And all God's people said, Amen.